Romans chapter 3, verse 3. King James Version. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith or the faithfulness of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou, speaking of God, mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome, that would be us, when thou art judged. I'd like to speak to you tonight on the subject, God is faithful to his principles. God is faithful to his principles. God made a covenant that was in line with his nature, and his covenant with day and night, every covenant that God has ever created, proves that he is faithful. The fulfilled promises, the prophecies of the Bible that have come to pass, prove that God is faithful. God's faithfulness to his people throughout the ages prove that God will never leave us, nor will God ever forsake us. And God's unfolding purpose has and will continue to prove that God is faithful to His eternal purpose. And Lord willing, I'll speak more about that this coming Sunday. God is faithful. God is faithful to His principles, His promises, His people, and His purpose. Now God's nature is integrated into His holy wholeness. God's faithfulness is a reflection of His very nature. And as we teach and preach through these subjects, there'll certainly be overlap and crossover in concepts because all of this is integrated into the amazing nature of God. And at the end of us talking about the faithfulness of God, we will have barely scratched the surface of this subject. But today I want to embark on a on a discussion of the faithfulness of God to His principles. God's principles span the entire spectrum of life. God's Word is irrefutable and it is infallible. God's principles are generally referred to as truth in the Word of God. And I will use principles and truth and perhaps the law of God interchangeably in this message. A principle is a fundamental truth or a proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief. It is a reason to believe. It is our reasoning, those principles upon which the kingdom of God is established. Now, in the Bible, it's true that principles, the ethics of the Bible, are anchored in the nature of God. It is a revelation of the character of God. And the ethical directions, the morality of the Bible is grounded in the very character of Almighty God. What God requires is what He is Himself. The heart of every moral command in the Scripture is in essence a a demonstration of the nature of Almighty God. Whether it is calling us to salvation or to holiness, all of this is a reflection of the character and nature of our holy God. 
The will of God and the Word of God expresses what God is, who God is to us. His moral law is expressed by His character. And no more clearly is this demonstrated than in the Ten Commandments and in the holiness codes of the Bible. The moral law of God is permanent, it is universal, it is equally binding on all men and women in all periods of time throughout human history. When we say that God is faithful to His principles, we are saying that God is true to Himself. God has no inconsistencies. God has no variableness. God does not change. Malachi 3 and 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, because of that, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. I want to take some time to dive deep into Romans to demonstrate God's uncompromising, His unwavering faithfulness to His divine nature as expressed in His Word, the truth, the principles upon which everything hangs and was established by God Himself. Now in Romans chapters 1 through 3, Paul is like a prosecuting attorney representing Almighty God. He brings all the world into the courtroom and we all are found guilty before God. Pagans or Gentiles, Jews, all the world is guilty before God. We see the Apostle Paul driving home the irrefutable truth in Romans 3 and 10. It is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3.19, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, Paul brings all the world in. Chapter 3, he's concluding this to prove that everyone stands before God as sinners and that we must rely on the grace of God that was demonstrated to us by His death on the cross. But then in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is addressing the Jewish people in particular. Romans 3.1 What advantage then hath the Jew? Is there an advantage to being born of the stock of Abraham? Or what profit is there in circumcision, the practice of Judaism? And then Paul says, much every way. There are many advantages. But chiefly, he said, because unto them, unto the Jewish people, were committed the oracles of God. If there was one great advantage that every Jewish person enjoyed, it was that they had an Old Testament. They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They had those five books, the Pentateuch, upon which God's Word was established. That was an advantage to them. And let me say to you today that there is an advantage to being raised with the Bible. I was reflecting on this. 
And I guess when I was growing up, I heard the testimonies of people who came to God in their teen years or adulthood, and uh, it seemed like a great testimony that God had saved them out of sin. But let me remind you of the blessing of being raised with a Bible, being raised in the body of Christ, being raised with a church. There is an advantage to being raised in a godly home among apostolic people in an apostolic church. For the Jews, our Old Testament counterparts, it meant that they had the law, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple, and the people of God. They had a Bible to preach. They had a preacher to preach it. They had a place to gather for worship, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then the temple that Solomon built. And then they had the support of families, a community of believers. The church to them was the center of their world. The tabernacle was literally set up in the middle of all of Israel as they encamped in the wilderness. God was demonstrated to be in the center of it all. It troubles me when I see people move God out of the center of their lives and into the periphery of their lives. It doesn't mean that God is not a part of their lives, at least in their profession or in their thinking, but God has just moved. He's no longer the center of their solar system. Their life no longer revolves around the nature of God, the principles of God's word and God's church. Now God has been moved to the periphery of their lives. They brush against him now and then, but he certainly is not the cornerstone or the reference point for all the decisions and the values of their life. God is there in the periphery for a while, but then typically he kind of is moved away and life is now centered around humanistic thinking, around us being the Lord of our lives. And we revert back to being like the book of Judges when every person does that which is right in their own lives. God is a part of their life, but He is not their life. That is just one consideration among many things. Moses appealed to Israel about the blessings of God that God had graciously given them. Talking about God and His principles and His faithfulness to the principles. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses said, I taught you statutes and judgments. I taught you these things so you could go and possess the land. And you should keep them. And they will be for your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of other nations. He said, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great? Who has a God that is so close to them as our God is? That we can call on Him in time of trouble. And what nation, he said, is so great that has statutes and judgments and all of these righteous facts of the law. Now to us sometimes people see that that God's word is kind of a problem to us. But Moses said, I want you to think about the blessings that God has brought into your lives. The moral nature of God's laws. A superior way of living. Those are the principles upon which God has built His Word and His church. We should never be ashamed 
that God has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Don't ever despise the commandments of the Lord, His principles of right and wrong. Moses said that these laws, these principles are great and they are righteous. <clears throat> Moses goes on in Deuteronomy 4 and he tells the people to take heed to their soul, that they not forget. Because if you forget, Moses said, then you will depart. But he said, I want you to teach them to your sons and to your grandchildren, your sons' sons. Don't forget these principles. Don't depart from them and don't cease teaching them to the next generation. There are some people who live by the Bible, but they don't teach it to their children. So they depart from it, they, for, they forget it first, then they depart from it, and the next generation is totally lost and has no knowledge or very little knowledge of God. <clears throat> and then in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 4, Moses said, I especially want you to remember the day that you stood in Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where God gave you the Ten Commandments. You need to fear God, reverence Him, and teach your children. He said, you came near to the mountain. It burned with fire. God spoke to you. He gave you a covenant, principles, a commandment that you should perform. And He wrote them in the tables of stone. And He told us that we should teach these statutes and judgments and that we should do them. Now I'm laying this foundation about the principles of God's Word. In Moses' final address to Israel in Deuteronomy 28, he hearkens back to everything they knew, everything they had been taught. And the Lord said to Moses, I want you to understand, if you will hearken diligently to these things, that the Lord will set you high above the nations of the earth. I want to take a moment to tell you that we can live the blessed life if we live the obedient life according to God's Word. And Moses said all these blessings will come upon you. You know, in this passage, there are blessings for obedience and there is cursing for disobedience. And he goes on to say you'll be blessed in the city, in the field, and your, the fruit of your body and your livestock, your, your basket, your store. You'll be blessed in, when you come in and go out God will cause your enemies to fall before you and the Lord will command the blessing on you. He will set uh, His hand on you and bless you in everything you do. God will establish you if you will keep these commandments and walk in His ways. And all the people of the earth will see you. You'll be an Old Testament light of the world. They'll fear you. And God will will make you plenteous. And he goes on to explain what that means. He'll give you rain. Bless the work of your hand. You will lend to many nations and not borrow. I'll make you the head and not the tail. I'll make you above only and not beneath. And that will all happen if you will not ignore my word, my law, these divine and eternal principles upon which I have built my kingdom. Now we know by the Bible, from the history of Israel, that they abandoned God's principles. They broke His laws. They backslid. They went into captivity. We know that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. 
that the law taught us that we cannot live for God by human effort alone, that we need the power of the Spirit in order to live for God. Good intentions, heritage, human effort, all of that alone will never enable you to live for God. It will all lead to failure. That's why we need to trust in the Lord. And then Paul, in Romans chapter 3, he talks about this history, you know, he brings us through to this point, and I wanted to rehearse a little bit of what God had told the Jewish people, because Paul now is talking to these Jews. God has established His principles to them. And now centuries later, Paul reminds these Roman Christians that the Jews were blessed to be insiders to God's plan and God's principles. But then he asked them a question. The question that I want to ask of you about your life and about our culture. Romans 3 and 3. For what if some did not believe? But what happened if some didn't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? One translation says, will it nullify the faithfulness of God? Will it make the faithfulness of God without effect? So what happens? What happens if a person, a group of people, an entire denomination of believers, of church people, what if all the children of Abraham or the children of God just decide that they're not going to believe? Is this like a vote? Is this a poll? Is God a candidate running for office? What if God doesn't get a majority vote? What if more people choose to not live by God's principles than live for them? Does that mean by implication that He is no longer God? What if some or all the people in the world decide that God's word and God's ways are not valid, that they're not needed, that they're not enforced today, that things that were written in the Bible aren't really applicable to this modern society. What is God going to do? Will He lower His standards? Will He scrap the Scriptures that are hard to follow? Ask Noah what God does when the world votes no. Ask Noah what God does when only eight people in the entire world vote to obey God and live by His Word. Ask the disciples what Jesus does when people are offended as they were in John chapter 6, verse 66. The Bible said that many of His disciples went back and walked with Him No more. But Jesus didn't fire his campaign manager. He didn't come up with a new strategy. He didn't try to figure out a way to reclaim those that had walked away. He just looked right into the eyes of the disciples who were left standing there, the twelve, and he asked them the question, Will you also go away? I'm addressing this question, What if some do not believe? 
What if some people in our world, what if you watching right now decide that the Bible is no longer relevant in your life and it is no longer the final authority for you? What does that do to you and what does that do to God? What does that do to the eternal consequences? Paul gives the answer to the question. Let's read both verses again. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God, the faithfulness of God, without effect? Paul says, God forbid. Some translations say, certainly not. And then Paul lays this down. Let God be true. And if this is what it means, let every man a liar. As it is written, that ultimately in the end, God will be justified in everything he says. And we will be overcome when we are judged by the eternal principles of the word of God. You see, the unbelief of one or everyone does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Nor does it give us a pass for our accountability to the word of God. There are a couple of other translations. One paraphrase of verse 4, I wanted to read for emphasis. One paraphrase says the verse 4, not on your life. Depend on it. God keeps His word even when the whole world is lying through its teeth. Scripture says the same. Your words stand fast and true. Rejection doesn't phase you referring to God. And of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say and you will win your case in court. Romans 1, 2, 3 are somewhat said in a legal context and God will have his day in court. Every day is God's day. And God will ultimately win. So I know I'm driving this home, but unbelief does not cancel God's promises. And sorry to the cancel culture, you cannot nullify what God has said. He is not in a popularity contest. He is God. Amen? I recommend that you read Romans 1, 2, and 3 again. And especially I'm going to refer to Romans 1. That Paul spoke of a pagan culture that slouched towards Sodom, but it did not change the fact that judgment was coming. Romans 1 and 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and against all unrighteousness of men who hold the truth, who know what to do, but they hold it by living in unrighteousness. Romans 1 and 20, For the invisible things of Him From the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, creation, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. This past Sunday I referred to Psalm 19, when the heavens declare the glory of God. Here in Romans 1, Paul says that even if a person does not understand or have the Word of God, that they have creation, And God has condemned them by His revelation of His nature, by the principles of the natural world. 
But here's what happens when people reject the principles of God. They change the truth into a lie. They worship what was created instead of the Creator. Verse 26 and 27 tells us that there are vile in their affections. That women and men were perverted in their sexual desires into homosexuality, what the Bible would call sodomy. This was society's long slippery slope in the spirit and sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Twin cities that God destroyed because their sins were so corrupt. He did not allow them to remain until the final judgment. Romans 1 and 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They just said, you know, whatever God, we're tired of you. We don't believe your principles. So God, you're out of here. I'm reminded of Isaiah 28 when the Lord said, you've made lies your refuge. But he said, the bed is shorter than you can stretch yourself on it. And the covers are more narrow than you can cover yourself. He said, when judgment comes through, it's going to sweep you away like a flood. I'm going to lay justice to the line. I'm going to measure you by my eternal principles and your life of lies will not stand. God in Romans 1, gave them over to a reprobate mind. God is coming. They know the judgment of God. But not only do they live ungodly lives, but some merely have pleasure in them that commit immorality. I want to pause just a moment in the spirit of a pastor to tell you that doing evil and being entertained by evil are both sinful. Being entertained by immoral and ungodly media is having pleasure in them that commit sinful acts. So be careful who you follow, who you like. Be very careful who you affirm by befriending, by liking, by adding your voice to something that is subtracting from the voice of God. Be careful what you listen to and what you watch. You are being affected for eternity by the media that you drink into your imagination that lodges in your subconscious and shapes your spirit and your conduct and your character. Romans 1.32 says that God will judge sinners and that they are, that they are worthy of death. So this is very, very serious stuff that God is faithful to His principles. And I just want to underscore it now that it doesn't matter what I believe or you believe. It matters what God says. And we can either go against God's principles. And the Bible said that the way of transgressor, the transgressor is hard. We're going against the wages of sin is death. Or we can live in alignment to the principles of God and enjoy God's blessings. The Apostle Paul says that the unbelief of these people, Jewish people in the Old Testament, does not make God's principles invalid. Now this subject of the principles of God is vast. The entire Bible tells the story of God's commitment to truth. But I wanted to drill down into this passage as I have done in Romans 3, 3 and 4, that principles are the foundation of everything. That God has a nature. And His Word, the Bible, reveals who He is and what He calls 
right and wrong. And there's an example in the book of Job of the scope of the governance of God. Now, I'm going to go into an entirely different concept here related to God's principles. But I really felt like that I should address this with you tonight uh, in this Bible study on God's faithfulness to His principles. That there are times when people foolishly question God. You know, it's worse than bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's like bringing a water pistol to a nuclear war for a human being to get in the ring and try to debate God. Man's wisdom and reasoning is paltry. It is insignificant compared to God's. So you may know the story of Job, an entire book of the Bible dedicated to his story, to God's story. Job was righteousness and he did not charge God's foolishly. Job's friends thought they had all the answers to why Job was going through this trouble. But in the middle of his trial, Job had his own questions for God. And in return, God had a few questions for Job. I'm going to read through a passage in the New Living Translation for several reasons. I want to show you how when God is talking to Job, that he is taking him back to the principles of the natural world. And he's saying to Job, who are you to question me? I've got natural laws and spiritual laws. They're irrefutable and you're not even worthy to get in this ring and question me. And by doing so, you're rather foolish. God is faithful to his principles upon which the earth was founded. Job 38, 1, New Living Translation. The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind and he said, Who is that who questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you. And you, Job, must answer them. Now I'm already shaking in my boots and I'm not Job. And God's not speaking directly to me. And God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. So I want to stop right here to say that God is getting ready to ask Job some questions about the world that he created. And I have a dual purpose. I want you to see God's word, but I want you to see what he established in the natural so you will see that it is unquestionable so that when God lays down laws in the spiritual that they are equally unquestionable. He asked Job, who determined its dimensions of the world and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone like a building that has a cornerstone, as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who kept the sea, Job, inside its boundaries and as it burst from the womb, as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. God said, it will come no further. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you, Job, ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring back an end to the night's wickedness? 
As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors, God says. The light disturbs the wicked. It stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs, Job, from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? I know that there are trenches in the ocean that are 10,000 meters deep. Job, have you been there to see where this comes from? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize, Job, the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from? And where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course, you know all this. For you were born before it was all created. You are so very experienced. God is speaking to Job. Have you, have you visited the storehouse of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? I have reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Where is the path to the source of light? Where is the home of the east wind who created a channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path for the lightning? Who makes the rain fall on barren land in a desert where no one lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground? Where is the, uh, it makes the tender grass to spring up? Does the rain have a father? Who gives birth to the dew? Who is a mother of the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? For the water turns to ice as hard as a rock and the surface of the water freezes. God is referring to the laws of science and the laws of nature that he established. And he asked Job, Job, can you direct the movement of the stars? Binding the cluster of Pleiades, loosening the cords of Orion. Can you, Job, direct the constellations through the seasons? Or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens. Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? It gives intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind. Who is wise enough to count the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven? When the parched ground is dry and the soil is hardened by the clods. Well, Job doesn't have anything to say. But God does not let up. It's like the courtroom of Romans 1, 2, and 3. And, and Job is a good man, a godly man. He loves God. He hates evil. He's a perfect and an upright man. But now God is asking him, Come on, Job, let's talk about my world and your world. And let's talk about you calling me in as if I have done wrong. God asked Job about lions and ravens. He asked him about wild goats and wild donkeys and wild oxen, the ostrich, the horse, hawks, and eagles. Job and the Lord talk, and, and Job is sort of stuttering around. How can, how can I ever find an answer? And I'll cover my mouth. I've already said too much already. I have nothing more to say. But God doesn't stop. He says, Job, brace yourself. I have some more questions for you and you must answer them. Will you discredit my justice? And will you condemn me to prove that you are right? Are you stronger than God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? 
Put on your glory and splendor and your honor and majesty. Give vent to your anger, Job. Let it overflow against the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance. Walk on the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust. Imprison them in the world of the dead. Then even I, God said, would praise you. Job, if you can do any of that, I will turn around and I will praise you. And then God goes on about behemoth and Leviathan. And finally, Job taps out. He waves the white flag. He surrenders to the sovereignty of God. And he says, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions your wisdom so much? And Job said, it is me. I'm talking about things I don't know anything about. Things too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Job said, but I had only heard about you, but now I've seen you. I take back everything I've said. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. God said to Job, Job, when you go through trouble in your life, you may question God. You may wonder why he does what he does. You may not understand his purpose. You may not understand his principles. But God said, I am a wise and almighty God. And it doesn't matter whether you vote for me or against me. Let God be true and every man a liar. God has no need to prove anything to anyone. But he does prove himself out of his love and desire for us to be saved. It was Nebuchadnezzar who said, I've learned this about God, that his dominion is everlasting. His kingdom doesn't end. And the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. God does whatever he chooses in the armies of the earth and no one can stop him and no one can even question him by asking God, what are you doing? So what about you? It doesn't take very much for a man or woman to become proud in their own conceits. To think that we're really something and to call God in on the carpet, so to speak, and to question God in His principles and His ways. But I'm here to point out that the God who created the natural world gave us examples to connect them to the spiritual world. So make sure we understand that He is faithful to His natural world. He is faithful to the spiritual world. He is faithful to His Word. And that God's governance over creation proves His authority to judge right and wrong, to decide what is good and bad, and to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. When we human beings reject God and His nature and God's morality, we in turn worship something. We're wired for worship. If we don't worship Him, we'll worship what He created there are no moral requirements to an idol. The golden calf of the Old Testament doesn't ask anything of you. While Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, Israel is dancing around a golden calf and their idolatry leads to immorality as it always does. And when you remove God from your life, it always leads to sin. So tonight, I invite you to honor God 
and recognize His faithfulness to the principles that govern the world, that govern time, and will rule on and on and on into eternity. For they demonstrate the faithfulness of God. And we will be judged by God. We will not judge God, but we will be judged by God for how we live our lives in submission to the faithfulness of God to His principles. The God that created a covenant with day and a covenant with night also created a covenant with us by the blood of His cross. And that covenant has requirements for us to live in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is not a way. He is the way. Balaam observed that God is not a man that he should lie. But whatever God says shall stand. For what if some do not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faithfulness of God of none effect? God forbid. Let God be true and every man a liar. You see, the wisdom and depths of God's amazing word is beyond our comprehension. No one has ever counseled God. But there are always requirements. Romans 11, bleeding over into Romans 12 and 1. And I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. God is faithful to His principles. Would you pray with me right now? Lord, I thank You that You are a faithful God. And from beginning of end to the end of time and on into eternity, You're the governor of all the universe. You're a wise God. And you are faithful to the principles that you established. I thank you, Lord, that you've taught us lessons from nature. That you are sovereign. And the most understanding that a man has cannot approach to the wisdom and knowledge of God. So we humble ourselves before you. And we recognize that the God of creation became the God of the cross. And that you've called us to a place of salvation. I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us that if we will be faithful to you, that you will honor us in our lives and that we will be rewarded by following your principles. For great is thy faithfulness. Morning to morning, day to day, you are great and mighty 